Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, guest host Dr. Amber Luong will be speaking to Dr. Eugene Chang about his recent article, Virtual Coach, the Next Tool in Functional Endoscopic Sinus Surgery Education. This episode of Scope It Out is made possible by support from Fiagon ENT Navigation. The new Fiagon Cube 4D provides easy-to-use navigation in a compact yet highly robust system. A new groundbreaking feature includes a touchless registration technique that utilizes point cloud technology to capture the entire surface of the patient's face during the registration process. With one click of a button, you can achieve superior registration accuracy all in under 20 seconds. Please visit www.fiagon.com to find out more about the new Cube 4D system and the latest groundbreaking navigation technology from Fiagon. Hi, welcome to Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm the guest host, Dr. Amber Luong, from the McGovern Medical School at the University of Texas at Houston. I've invited Dr. Eugene Chang from the University of Arizona College of Medicine to discuss his recent paper entitled, Virtual Coach, the Next Tool in Functional Endoscopic Sinus Surgery Education. Hi, Eugene. Happy New Year to you. So congratulations on this paper that's about to be published. So I hope you don't mind spending a little bit of time with us discussing some of the nuances of your paper. Thank you for inviting me again. Absolutely. So I understand that this manuscript actually builds on some of the work that you and your team have been working on for some time now, which is the Neurorhinological Surgery Mixed Reality Simulator. Do you mind just so that we have a better understanding of this paper, giving us some the, the components of the simulator and any other background information we need? Absolutely. And so certainly I get the pleasure of being able to talk to you and represent our team, but it certainly is a team effort. It's composed of myself, uh, Sam Barber, who's one of our very talented and enterprising otolaryngology residents, as well as our partners in engineering, including Sarab Jain and Young Jun San. And so the goal for this mixed reality simulator was really to develop a training platform that could be immersive, adaptive, and really train the next generation of surgeons using modern materials. And so what we've decided to do is Uh, We've decided to use virtual reality as our base point. So our uh, users put on um, virtual reality goggles to really get into this immersive surgical operating room. But more importantly than that, one of the criticisms has been haptics and patient specificity. And so we've actually used 3D printed surgical tools and instruments as well as 3D printed models so that people can gain that haptic feedback of getting the feel of putting instruments into the nasal cavity and then having this environment that's both adaptive as well as interactive. So Sarab has really worked on developing an artificial intelligence algorithm to be able to classify users in terms of their proficiency and their performance and adapting the simulation based on their skill levels to really engage users of all skill levels. So, so you know, medical students, residents, and even practicing surgeons who've had many hours of experience, I think everybody could gain some um, utility with this. And then um, Sam Barber has really pushed the envelope in terms of the virtual reality portion, in terms of the 3D printing. And we've partnered with Aztec, which is our simulation center here at the University of Arizona to provide a, um, an environment and a home base where people can use this initially within our home center, but hopefully we intend to bring it out to centers uh, across the country and worldwide. Excellent. Well, we'll get into a little bit more of your study, but so what inspired your interest in this topic in the first place? 
So what inspired my interest is my probably my own lack of surgical skill and frustration, I think. So, you know, when I was first training in residency, and this may, may date me a little bit, but when we were training, it, endoscopic sinus surgery was really hard and it was really challenging. And then part of that was because, you know, I learned through video courses, and these weren't even video courses that I attended. These were video courses that our attendings had gone to had purchased the, the VCR tapes. So these are video VCR oh, wow. tapes of, you know, Dr. Kennedy's first courses back in the early 80s. At that time, uh, DVDs were first starting to get popular. So the first thing that I did during my rotation was I bought a, a, a VHS to DVD burner, burned all of those DVDs, and I just watched them every single night, and I watched them for a couple of hours. Part of that transference was fantastic because I, I really felt like I started to learn the anatomy and I started uh-huh. to learn some of the techniques. And then going back into the operating room, many of the tendons that we were working with still used a endoscope where they would use um, um, their own eye and they wouldn't have a video camera. And so that was challenging, right? Because we right. You know, go into surgery, they do something and they say, you know, Eugene, take a look and you take a look and everything was red and it was really hard to tell what was right. Wrong. And then they'd ask you to do something and, you know, you do, you know, you do a procedure and then you'd hand back the eyepiece and to them everything was red and they'd get frustrated and they'd say, well, you know, did you really do what we wanted you to do? And so, so that was challenging and, and it wasn't a great way of learning. And so the next step was cadaveric courses, going to cadaveric courses, really being able to learn the anatomy in a non-pressured situation. But those were also difficult because they're expensive. Um, right. You know, you get to do it maybe once a year or once every two years during a residency. And they weren't very realistic. So, you know, the tissues didn't bleed. Right. Um, every tissue was, you know, every cadaveric head was uh, different. And there were some ethical concerns as well, too. We would have to rent out um, our anatomy lab. We couldn't do it really at major centers. And it led to some difficulties for preparation of these surgeries. During the surgery itself, you know, I, I had the fortune of training with both Scott Graham as well as Aaron O'Brien, who are fantastic surgical mentors. But it was hard because, uh, you know, they would ask me to do things, and, and they knew my interest in endoscopic sinus surgery. But being able to transfer what you want somebody to do during surgery while a patient is, you know, asleep and potentially at risk is, you know, anxiety-inducing. And it's something that I also struggled with when I first became an attending. You know, really wanting to get junior residents in, being able to do the procedures, really push their own boundaries, but at the same time having this obligation to patients to be able to kind of make sure that they got the best surgical care. Absolutely. I I completely agree with you on that, especially even though now most of us operate with the camera so the residents can see. It's still really challenging, especially some of the initial skills, which I think you talk about it, which is just holding a scope and an instrument at the same time could be learned outside the OR and oftentimes they're having to to try to either learn it on a patient or, or some of these other situations, which are a little bit more rare opportunities. I understand that that first paper that you wrote basically sort of describe the components of this system. So what was the goal of of this specific study? So the goal of this specific study was, could we make an adaptive algorithm that would be able to train residents and make it a high-fidelity, immersive environment? And what we mean by that is, currently, when we practice our endoscopic sinus surgeries, whether it be through cadaveric courses, through video courses, through hands-on approaches, some of our feedback is, is quite sporadic, and people teach in different styles, and people kind of learn in different methods. So how could we do this? How could we standardize this? How could we really engage users in being able to perform these surgeries and really learn from them? And so 
you're absolutely right. Building the environment is important. So we incorporated what's called a virtual coach. So a virtual coach combines all of these studies. And so we, we have a monitor that will enable users to be able to play real surgical videos while they're doing the procedure so they can see what it looks like. And we also have the ability to adapt the level of difficulty. And so we can actually use audio and visual cues. For instance, when we're doing the maxillary antrostomy and you're getting close to the lamina papricia, beginners can actually have both audio and visual cues where the lamina is highlighted and where there's actually auditory feedback mechanisms very similar to like the parking sensors in our cars, right? So when we're backing up and we're getting close to telephone pole or when another car is speeding by, we hear the beep, 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 beep. The same thing can happen while you're doing the, the surgical procedure. Is that something that the software can recognize, or do you, upon initiating, you sort of self-categorize whether you're a novice or, or an expert, and, and that's how your feedback experiences? Saurabh has, has done a great job on this. So you can categorize what your level of expertise, novice, intermediate, or expert. Okay. Actual, the actual algorithm will, after studying you for several times, be able to classify your level of expertise as well, too. So as you can imagine, it, it may be humbling to people who, who haven't used our, our, our uh, simulators. For instance, if you, if you classify yourself as an expert and then the simulator deems you as potentially a novice or an intermediate, it's not necessarily that you're not an expert surgeon, but it's just that you need to kind of adapt and get used to the, the method of how the algorithm is tracking you. But, but the algorithm is actually quite complex, and it's, it's pretty beautiful. Um, we actually track our surgical instruments in real time, very similar to our navigation-based uh, technology, and we analyze the fluency of surgical movements. And so it's really the beauty of surgery. When we see expert surgeons out there, including yourself, and you're doing cadaveric uh, dissections or we're watching real-time surgery, Mm -hmm. I'm amazed by how easy it looks. And we don't know why it looks so easy, but now we've got a method where we can potentially objectively quantify that and, and then potentially get, you know, users who are novices, who are um, intermediate users, and get them to that point quickly. And that's the concept of deliberate practice. Interesting. So just to delving into some of the details of your study, I think if I – you, you – did, you had novice, I guess, residents and medical students, as well as then your expert people, your faculty um, who done more sinus surgery. And so, and then you had them go. Tell me exactly what you had them do, and how did you sort of teach your software how to differentiate, or that, that you were able to differentiate these two kind of levels of surgeons. Initially, we used our maxillary antrostomy um, subjective. So this was a, just a, essentially a user module where people would um, pick up the instruments, both a um, camera, so the nasal endoscopic camera, as well as a suction tool. And that was a 3D-printed camera and suction tool, correct? Right. So this is a 3D-printed okay. camera as well as a suction tool. They've actually got trackers located on them, so using the VR light boxes, we can track the instruments in real time so that when you put on the goggles, you can see the instruments, you can see the instruments go into the nose, and you've got this beautiful high-def screen where you can actually see the endoscopic view. So uh, allowing tracking instruments allows you to kind of assess the dimensions of how these instruments move in three dimensions, and also are there critical structures that we've identified and pre-segmented? Are these structures getting hit or are they getting touched? Very similar to like the game of Operation, right? So, you know, that board game where right. you have to take liver or you have to take out the heart, but you can't touch the structures outside of it. Same thing with endoscopic sinus surgery. So we gave 
a training, a brief training demo to both novices as well as our experts, um, and then we had them go through the maximum entrosomy. Our AI algorithm initially was able to classify the experts as well as the novices based on our objective measures. We said, look, I am an expert. Let me run through this entrosomy. And then we had novices run through that as well, too. And we had them, we looked at all of the um, objective measures, including time, including structures hit, including fluency of motions. And then we had, this was a training module of the adaptive algorithm. And then we had them continue to use that and see how accurate was the algorithm in actually identifying experts versus novices. The beauty of this is as we get more and more users to kind of play with our simulation module, we'll have more and more data. So the algorithm will continue to grow and continue to become more accurate, and, and it will continue to adapt as well, too. Wow, that's very interesting. So explain to me, what is the actual, like, for someone who may not understand virtual reality so much, what exactly is your virtual coaching? What do you mean by that? What kind of feedback are you getting when you're doing this, for example? For virtual reality, virtual reality is part of the immersive environment. So when okay. you put on the goggles, Amber, um, you'll be able to look around. You'll be able to see yourself in kind of the most advanced operating room. And the reason why it's the most advanced is because it's got three huge monitors in front of you. So one monitor is what we call the virtual coach, and so that allows you to kind of look at tutorials for videos. It allows you to have real-time-based task analyses. So Oh, wow. Okay, I see. As we okay. do the map and trust me, you know, put the endoscope into the nose, identify the um, unsnit, touch the unsnit process, devialize the middle turbine, identify the maximum, trust me. And as you're doing these, it will check these lists off for you sequentially so that I that way see. you have somebody, you know, what we used to do, you know, in our category courses and pointing to people, you know, do this, do this, do this. This is now automated. And so it kind of gives you that tutor or that personalized feedback. I understand. Uh, and then your other two screens that you get to see in, in this environment uh, what are the other two screens? So the second one is actually our navigation module. So similar to kind of our current navigation-based systems, it'll enable you to scroll through the CT scans and see exactly where your instruments are in real time. And then the last one is actually our endoscopic view. And so with the controllers that we have, we actually have adaptable buttons where we can press them and you can get 0, 30, and 70-degree endoscopic views along with your suction. Nick Rizzo, who's one of our developers now, has enabled physics-based modeling. So when you touch the metal turbinate, it actually moves. And oh, then wow. when you touch it enough, it actually bleeds and it swells. And so his, his background is actually in um, first-person shooter games. And so he was <laughs> okay. really interested and excited when he first built this physics-based module. And he showed me, and I said, gosh, our, our sinus surgery really isn't that bloody. we got to tone it down the notch. And the humbling <laughs> experience of it was he said, look, Look, Eugene, I've seen your videos. I really do think it is this blood. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's, wow. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> well, you bring up a, an, another good point of starting to add more than just, you know, the structures to your algorithm. But some of the things, I, I understand part of it is the, the 3D modeling of the bony structure. And I think there was also going to be like a mesh, right, if I understand that correctly, so that each of individual sinus cavity configuration can be put into this, the harder model. It, it, am I understanding that correctly? Let me describe first our segmentation process. And so okay. I think you alluded to the segmentation process. So we can actually take patient-based CT scans and perform segmentation, and that's not new. And so we can segment the anterior ethmoid artery, the brain, the lamina, and these can all be highlighted or, or used as kind of areas where we 
talk about collisions and colliders. So mm-hmm. you know, if your instrument goes through the lamina, that's how the computer knows that yeah, you, know, you, you, know, you didn't score well on the simulation because you went through the lamina and you went through the eye. In terms of the 3D-based portion, we actually build the skull with a 3D printer, and then we actually are now using a silicone mold for the soft tissue in the face. And okay. the reason why we do that is because we're really keen on, on replicating the feel of surgery. And what we I showed see. in our study was that you know, some, some simulation-based modules have no feel, so that you use controllers as your instrument, and, and that's... Mm-hmm. And that's good, but surgery is all tactile-based, right? And so feel is, and touch is so important. So probably the most important thing for us was getting that feel of what does it feel like for an instrument to go into a nasal cavity and, and for you to be operating in a, a relatively enclosed space. Okay. And, and the silicone mold as well as the 3D print of the craniofacial bones really helps to replicate that. And then when you look at the tissues and the structures and, and you look at Nick and Sam's work of the physical-based modeling and, and, and Sarah's work as well, and when you touch the middle turbinate and it moves, it's amazing how your brain is able to process this. And even though you're actually not touching tissues and structures in real time, your brain thinks that it is because right. whatever is actually causing a reaction. That That has been tremendous, and I think – at least in this point in terms of our technology and making sure that this is still a, you know, feasible aspect from a cost-based system, I think that mixed reality, and that's what we're calling this, it's a combination of both virtual reality as well as physical-based instruments and tools and, and craniofacial skeletons and silicone molds, that combination is really going to provide the best feel at this time for surgical simulation. Well, going forward, do you envision, and you mentioned this a little bit in your discussion about some of the at least initial limitations, but right now you can't dissect is my understanding. So we you don't quite yet have the capability to, let's say, go into the ethmoid bulla and then take down with, with true cutting instruments the anterior, medial, or inferior face of that bulla. Do you envision that that is something that we you might be able to do going forward? We're excited to actually share that we are now able to dissect, which is which has been really cool. It's been a big stumble oh, wow. from a technological perspective, but our our top notch team um, really has identified that you can dissect. So as these instruments and structures are going through these virtual tissues, we can now dissect these areas um, and and we can create openings and cavities. And so that's really going to be able to, you know, continue to advance this area so that it's not just an identification tool, mm-hmm. but it's actually really a surgical dissection tool. And I think that, that, you know, that's exciting and props to them. I mean, it's spent, they've, they've spent hours and hours trying to develop these algorithms and codes and, and we're, we're getting, uh, you know, we've, we've shown that we can do that. So I'm, I'm very happy and excited. So, you know, looking at the literature in, in preparation to, to understanding your paper and, and also in, uh, before talking to you, I understand that some of these virtual simulators have been out, you know, introduced almost as early as the 1990s. So why do you think that some of these haven't been so widely adopted? What are some of the barriers to adoption? And maybe you sort of alluded to it a little bit. Is How is your simulator a difference such that maybe the uh, some of these barriers don't become an issue and, and may be um, more widely used? We certainly wanted to acknowledge all of those that have, have worked on this process before us, and, and we really built off of them. They've built a very solid foundation in simulation, both in otolaryngology as well as in um, laparoscopic surgery from general surgery. I think part of it is timing, and so we're riding a wave right now where these devices have become research-based and now consumer-based. And what I mean by that is 
you know, our kids can go to Target and buy an Oculus Rift for $200 now. And it's amazing. I mean, the cost of these virtual reality devices have, have gone down tremendously. Part of it is also software-based as well, too. Unity-based game engines, so these game engines that have driven all the first-person shooters that have become so popular. Gamers and developers now are realizing that, look, we can actually go outside of the world of gaming and, and go into simulation. And, and for us, it's exciting because we're going to make a you know, we hope to make a big difference in patient safety as well as education and training. And so I think we're at the right place at the right time, and we've got the right team. Again, you know, this is this is not my paper. This is our paper. And, and just being able to partner in a multidisciplinary collaborative fashion with ENT residents like Sam Barber, with our College of Engineering, such as Young Jun San and Sarah Jane, and our uh, developers and programmers like Nick Rizzo. It's been really fun to work, yeah. and it, it makes you excited to kind of go into the day. And, yeah, I, I hope that we're, we're going to be able to bring this to a more user level. I think part of the issue in the past was this was all kind of um, more research-based. Right. A user base, and now I think we've got user bases. We've got high-fidelity DICOM images from all of our patients who get sinus surgery, and these can easily be adapted and segmented and fit into our simulator from a patient-specific perspective. And then it can also be adapted as a training module more for kind of general endoscopic and skull-based surgery. All right. Well, I do want to highlight something that uh, that maybe for those of our listeners who have just kind of looked at your abstract, one of the things that I thought that is really important is the fact that you do use a commercial-based VR system to sort of start with. So I think that, like you were alluding to, some of the earlier systems were research-oriented and the, and the price point was much higher. Now, you know, uh, you can actually go and buy your, the system that you started out with. I think it's the – is it the Vive? So we use the Vive Pro. Which or Vive, is, which Vive. For about um, 1000 or about about $1,200 with the light stations. But I, I bet this time next year it will probably have gone down significantly. And that's the beauty of technology and Moore's Law is that just uh, – the cost of technology is just logarithmically decreasing. So I think that, yeah, this this can be in the hands of users. And, and we're trying to identify, you know, how can we – the university has been keen to look at, you know, can we commercialize these types of things? And mm-hmm. commercialization to me really is only a path of, of how, to, how can we get this into users? How can we get this for things for training? How can we use it potentially even for certification and, and you know, assessments, objective assessments of, of skill? Right. I think it would be great. I think that, you know, the the possibilities are endless. We're fortunate to be in this space right now. Well, I feel like this is a great timing to discuss your paper, given the fact that in Las Vegas they are having the Consumer Electronics, the CES symposium going on right now. So uh, you never know. Maybe you should go and stop by and see what new stuff is coming down the road that you might be able to take advantage of. Absolutely. CES is a great conference. Um, (laughs) We're actually presenting our work at the largest medical simulation conference called IMFH in two weeks. And we really hope to, um, we're submitting a, an abstract to be part of the simulation modules at Academy this year. So in September in Boston, they've actually opened things up for large group simulation-based talks. And I think that this would fit in nicely. So we'll, we'll, uh, oh, great. Right. Well, looking forward to it. I'll have to, uh, look out for it and stop by. Um, so what is, you know, to end with, what is the next step for your group in relation to the system? So right now we've got a working prototype, and, and we want to kind of fine-tune everything. We want to um, really make this easy, adaptable, go through all different operating platforms and make it simple because uh, we found that although the, the technology is complex, the coding is complex, the best 
games and the best simulations are the ones where users are excited to use them. And, and part of that is our adaptive algorithm. I think working on that will be important so that that way um, anyone from a medical student to a seasoned veteran and expert such as yourself and endoscopic sinus surgery will we'll get some use out of that. And, and if we can show that, then I think that we're really going to make a difference. And even in things like preoperative checklists and planning, can, I mean, I hope to imagine that, you know, when my resident's preparing for surgeries, you know, how cool would it be if you could say, hey, look, did you practice on this patient on the simulator? Right. And if they did, then it really allows me to be able to have our trainees push themselves more, and it allows me to be more comfortable because I know that the surgery that they're performing in real life when that patient is at risk is not the first time that they've operated on that patient. And that's tremendous. I think that that could be very exciting. Well, congratulations to you and your team. I'm very excited to see what becomes of it and definitely looking forward to going to Academy and stopping by your uh, presentation. Happy New Year. Thank you so much for your time, Eugene, for spending time and telling us a little bit more in detail about your study. Thank you, Amber. Thanks for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Myology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of podcast hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or the sponsors.